Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Would you fill those cards out as Jesus is watching? And then secondly, would you take out a Bible? Um, We are going to go to the book of Matthew and finally can now dive into the scriptures together. I want to welcome you, particularly if your name is Scott. We are glad that you are here. How many Scots do we have in the house? Okay, three. Welcome to you, Scots. Now, we have Bibles that we pass out. If you do not have a Bible this morning, let one of our ushers know. Raise your hand. They will hand you this divinely blue Bible. This Bible uh, is yours to keep if you don't have one at all. All right? If you don't have a Bible at all, please take this one on us. Um, If you have one, um, can you give this one back to us so we can give it to somebody who doesn't have one as opposed to people that have like four at home. And this just adds to the collection. This though, the divinely blue Bible is special because we all know God's favorite color is blue. All right. Okay. So let's go to the book of Matthew. (laughs) My name's Mike, by the way, we're glad you're here. Nobody. Now we also put the verses on the screen, but it's way cooler if you actually flip there yourself. So Matthew 25, and if you get one of these, I'll give you page numbers. Page 806. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we began to look at the idea that Jesus introduces something that was completely foreign to his disciples. Namely, the idea that he was going to come, suffer, rise from the dead, and then he was going to go away for a while, and then returned. There would be a delay between his first coming and second coming. Back then, people thought there were going to be two messiahs, one who would suffer and one that would conquer. Jesus teaches, nope, there's one messiah coming twice. And there's a delay between his first coming and his second coming. And last week, we looked at the idea of being ready. He tells a parable about the fact that there will be a delay, so don't be discouraged. And the delay will end at some point. History ends at some point. And nobody knows exactly when that's going to happen, so be ready. Jesus now, right after that parable, gives a parable about what it means to live ready. Not just to be ready, but how do you live? Sir, right here, there was a young lady who decided, kind of, she gave you a T-Rex. It wasn't a full-on extension. It was more of a, just a little. (laughs) Welcome, young lady. Glad that you're here. Now, and, and so what Jesus does is he, he gives a, uh, tells a parable about what, what it's like to live um, in the meantime. What do you do? And this is a parable, if you've been around church, you've heard this one, but we want to take it a slightly different direction than normal. So Matthew 25, verse 14, page 806. Scots, are you ready? Again, Jesus says, it, his kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, is how this has it. You might have talents, or see that up on the screen. A talent, we learned last week, is a large sum of money. So, back in the first century, if you were a day laborer, one day's wage was called a denarius. 6,000 days of wages equaled one talent. Okay? So, when it says that the master gave five talents, five bags of gold to the man. It's a huge sum of money. It's the equivalent of 30,000 days of work. Okay? 
Like, that's a lot of money. <laughs> to one, he gave five talents or bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. So they each get different amounts. Then the man went on his journey. This is the delay. This is Jesus saying, it's like me entrusting you with something, and then I go on a journey. The man who had received five bags of gold, or five talents, went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received only one went off, he dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, there's the delay, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. The man who had received five bags brought the other five. Now the word brought there is the wor a word that's used in bringing an offering in worship. It's a, it's a word of, of adoration and reverence. So the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, you entrusted me with five. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And the word for happiness and the word for banquet are the same word. So it's this sense of, like, Jesus often paints the idea of the age to come in, in like, party terms, banquet terms, feast terms. I don't know what you think heaven will be like, but the images that Jesus uses are awesome. They, and then they do not involve harps, even remotely. <laughs> the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two. See, I have two more. And the man who receives, who brought the two and gained two more, receives the same blessing and affirmation. So the point of this parable isn't that you better double your money or else. The point is that as long as you put it to work, you're blessed. And it doesn't matter. He blesses the dude with 10 the same way he blesses the dude with four. So it doesn't, it's, it's industriousness that's the point. It's faithfulness that's the point. It's not how effective you were with the money. So the man says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now, this is the point. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, I knew that you are a hard man. Now the word, excuse me, the word knew there means I've experienced you as a hard man. Okay, and this, this becomes important in just a second. I experienced you as a hard man harvesting where you have not planted. Now what's that called? Stealing. Okay, so if you've got two fields, the field that you planted, and then a field that someone else planted, and you're harvesting from the other one, we would call that theft. Would you agree? So the, the servant is saying to the master, I see you as a corrupt, unfair man. Okay, this becomes central. I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. The master replies ever affectionately, you wicked, lazy servant. So you experienced me 
As someone who harvests where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered, well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And then this uplifting note. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, Jesus tells a story. He prepares his followers for the fact that there will be a delay. And he tells a story about a master who goes on a journey and after a long time comes back. And he contrasts two servants with one servant. The two were faithful to take the resources they'd been given and invest them. To use them for the master's benefit. The other one hid it out of fear. Now, stick with me for the next like two minutes. The parable turns on the two different views the servants have of the master. The two servants use a word that means and can be used in a worship context when they say they brought back what they'd invested. So they have a view of the master that, that speaks of reverence, and gratitude and affection, whereas the third servant has a view of the master that's completely different from the other two because it's expanded upon. I see you as hard. I see you as unfair. I see you as unjust. So I hid your money because I was afraid I would lose it. The master responds, and get this part, If you see me as that corrupt, then at least you should have broken Jewish law by giving the money to a moneylender and receiving interest from it. If you see me as that corrupt, then you shouldn't have been worried about burying the thing. You should have at least put it uh, with a moneylender and I could have gained interest because you could not do that under Jewish law. Bless you. That's a big, manly sneeze. Now... Are you tracking with me on this? What I need you to see is that two of the servants acted the way they did because they saw the master a certain kind of way. And the one servant acted the way he did because he saw the master in a different way. The two servants loved and had affection for the master. The one servant didn't. So what we want to do is we want to explore... How our view of God leads us to live in this world. Because that's what Jesus is highlighting. You've all been given things. You've all been entrusted with much. You're invited to live industrious, faithful lives using what he's given you for his name's sake to the point where you'll be held accountable for what you did or didn't do. And the invitation is not only to not hide what you've been given, but to see the master in such positive terms that you're willing to risk for his benefit. So two questions we want to answer from this point forward. Question number one, what exactly have we been entrusted with? And then question number two, how does our view of God relate to that? So to answer question number one, let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. Because we can. Now, if you don't know where it is, Go left, very hard. <laughs> go left, go to the beginning. Deuteronomy's the fifth book. We'll go to the eighth chapter, page number 
147 in the divinely blue. A guy named Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel. Right before they're going into this land that God was going to give to them that was a pretty epic deal. They didn't do anything to earn this. It was a gift. So we're answering the question, what is it that God's entrusted to us that he holds us accountable for using? So let's start here. Verse 17. God says to his people, you may say to yourself, my hands have produced this wealth for me. Excuse me. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. I don't like this next part. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Okay, so what's one thing he's entrusted to you? The ability to even work. Right? Because I go around thinking, well, God didn't show up at work today. He didn't slave away. I mean, and by the way, do I not have the greatest job ever? I mean, just to be honest, I get paid to lead a church and study the Bible. Mm. It's awesome. <laughs> the only thing better I could think of is maybe Rockstar. But even then, I'm not sure. Go to Psalm 24. Now, even the ability to work is a gift from him. Go to the book of Psalms, right in the middle. Go to, verse, uh, go to chapter 24. Page 442. How are you guys doing in the front row? Okay, you're staying awake. Now let me tell you, when I was your age, is this was the worst part of the deal. The singing part was good. The leaving part was good. The donuts were great. But the dude talking for like 30 minutes, horrible. So the boredom you now feel, I can really relate to. And you enjoy it? How old are you? 14. You're 14? There are people here who are over twice your age who don't enjoy it right now. So I just want to say, well done. (laughs) Psalm 24. Well done, young man. Verse 1. See if this leaves anything out. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Well, it seems like The Bible's kind of suggesting that perhaps we're not owners of everything, we just borrow it for a while. And that every single piece of joy, goodness, beauty, and truth you come into contact with actually doesn't originate with you, but is a good gift of somebody else. Go to Matthew chapter 13. We're asking the question, what is it that he gives us? What is it that he entrusts to us? Go to Matthew 13. We were just in Matthew 25, go to page 794. Matthew 13, verse 11. Jesus speaking to his disciples. His disciples, it was lost on them a little bit how epic it was to have the Messiah in their midst. And so he's reminding them, hey, just so we're clear, people from like generations have been yearning to see the days that you now see. And they ask him, well, why do you speak in parables? Why don't you just talk like straightforwardly sometimes? And he says this, verse 11, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been entrusted to you. Whoever has will be given more 
and they will have an abundance, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. That's exactly the same phrase we just read that Jesus uses in Matthew 25. So one of the things that his followers are entrusted with are the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, what, what can that possibly mean? It doesn't mean that God only loves a few of us and nobody else. It doesn't mean that we're the special ones and no one else is special. It's not secret in the sense of, hey, it's only insider knowledge. It's secret in the sense that it's surprising. That the kingdom of the Messiah comes not with military power or political power or economic power, but the kingdom of the Messiah comes through suffering and sacrifice. That nobody expected. The kingdom of the Messiah starts small and humbly instead of gloriously. It comes subversively like a little bit of leaven infecting a whole batch of dough or like a little seed that grows into a massive shrub. So what are we entrusted with? That Jesus is Messiah and that as it turns out, God is infinitely better than any of us could have ever dreamt. Because he's made a personal appearance on planet Earth. And when he was here, he surprised everybody. A couple more. Let's go to the book of Acts. What have we been entrusted with? Go to Acts 17. Page 899. This is Paul speaking to a bunch of Greek philosophers. And if you ever get a chance to read this, I'd encourage you, because when he speaks to Jewish people, he's quoting the Jewish Bible all the time. When he's speaking to non-Jewish people, he doesn't reference it. And so he totally contextualizes to his audience, and he's talking about what God is like. And he says in verse 23 of Acts 17, And God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I love that. Anytime we're ever thinking God's lucky to have us, this might, be the this might be a good reminder. Rather, God himself gives everyone life, breath, and in case that wasn't comprehensive enough, everything else. Now, did that leave anything out? Not so much. Go to Romans chapter 12. One last one just because you're, I can tell you're in a good mood. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, then we'll make some sense of this. Paul writes this when talking about the church and the way the church relates. Romans 12, page 920. We each have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. The scriptures teach, if you've never heard this phrase, spiritual gift, the scriptures teach we each have a gift, at least one, energized by the Holy Spirit to be used in service of other people. So some teaching, some mercy, some hospitality, some faith, some prayer. I mean, it's all, it's just, the examples are just so wide. And here's the idea. Jesus tells a story about being faithful with what you have, which leads to the question, what do we have? And as it turns out, everything's a gift. Just in case we're wondering. Every single thing. Life, breath, everything. 
The earth is his and everything in it. Yeah, but Jesus doesn't go to work for me. Right? He doesn't show up and punch the clock. He does not, he's not getting grades on my behalf. They'd be a lot better if he were. At least in my case. But Deuteronomy, well, even your abilities, like the latent ability to work, the latent ability to study, even that's a gift from his. And then once you come into relationship with him, the surprising nature of his kingdom has now been entrusted to you. And on top of all of that, you have these special, unique abilities now that God gives for you to use in service of others. So as it turns out, what have I been entrusted with? Everything. Every single scrap of you-ness is a gift. Your personality, your body, the way that your brain fires, the way, the way your heart pumps, and the way your lungs exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide. I mean, that whole thing's a gift. And I don't look at it that way. I kind of think, well, I look at what I've done with myself. Which isn't that great. But, I mean, even that little bit, I think to myself, hey, this is awesome. And, and these, are, these are threads of Scripture that just remind me, no, no, the whole thing's a gift. The whole thing's on loan from Him. Every single thing that I would be tempted to call mine is, in actuality, not. And that is a radical thought for me. So if that's true, the question becomes, why is it so hard to live that way? And might I suggest that the twist Jesus puts on the parable is that many of us have a view of the master that instead of causing us to with great joy invest every single little bit of thing we have to hide it out of fear or apathy. Maybe an example will help clarify. When I was growing up, my dad was a fisherman. My dad, I I was always puzzled because he was an angry fisherman. Fishing wasn't, he hate, I mean, he had this love-hate thing. It frustrated him to know, and it's like golfers. Like, I know people who are, it causes them to be so angry. They throw clubs, and I'm like, why do you do that? That's not fun, right? I don't, I have no interest. So my, my dad and I would go fishing. And I learned very quickly that I didn't want to do the bobber fishing where you just sit and watch the bobber. I mean, how lame is that? <laughs> yep, here's a four-year-old. Just have him sit and watch a bobber. Really? Who, who? So I wanted to be the dude that like threw out the line over and over and over again. The problem was I was horrible at it, and I kept throwing it into tree branches and logs and seaweed. And every time I would do that, my dad would get mad at me. Like, really frustrated because he'd have to come over and he'd try to unsnare the thing and then clip the line and have to do new line and I'd lose a, one of his favorite lures or, you know, blah, 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 blah. So here's what I learned to do. Cast right in front of the boat. Like, don't, don't take a risk. It just wasn't worth him getting upset, right? So I just learned to fish that way. Just these little, you know, never, never go for like the sweet spot over there. You just go right in front of the boat. Now, if you're going, man, this better be good because I don't, this is totally not worth my time so far. Years later, I'm home from college. My dad says, you want to go fishing? I'm kind of like, hmm, okay. We go fishing. 
and uh, he takes me out, and, and, you know, it had been since I was, like, very young, and so, of course, I immediately snag on some, you know, line or whatever on some tree, and, and he just doesn't say anything. He's just like, oh, no problem, and we tootle over, and he does the thing, and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So five minutes later, I actually did it on purpose just to test him because I didn't quite trust the reaction. So I get it snagged like horribly this time, and he's just laughing and joking with me, and I'm just going, okay, so it's either Jesus or old age or some combination of the two because he's not angry anymore. Now, this is the very low payoff right now of this story. Once I realized I would not be punished for every screw-up, I fished differently. I had a lot more fun, and I was a lot more aggressive. I would try for the sweet spot over there by the tree trunk where you knew the fish were. Because I knew it was okay to get my line tangled up. Might I suggest that a similar thing can happen with us in the way we see God. There was a, a, a huge study done five years ago that suggested that the predominant view Americans have of God is of a God who is distant, critical, unconcerned, and authoritarian. Now, if that's the view of God you have, does that automatically lead to risk and faith and adventure in your walk with that God? I don't think so. I think it leads just to the river. I don't want to screw it up. And so I look at a church, and I look at my heart, and I find this very ironic sort of thing. The people who supposedly worship this all-powerful, all-good, all-loving being are terribly afraid and insecure, and often act like victims. The very people for whom martyrdom for generations was a privilege and suffering a joy are now tossed and turned by tidal waves of culture to the place where they're terribly afraid. The very people that boast in a risen Jesus who conquered death are terrified of dying. The people... for. 12, 11, 11 peasants turned the Roman Empire upside down. And churches of thousands now have no impact on the world around them. Isn't it a little sad how often we as the people of God live in fear and don't risk? Isn't it a little disturbing that many of us use our Christianity to keep us from actually being dependent on God. You ever thought of that? I play these games with him all the time. Money's my favorite arena. God, I will give you some of my money so that you will leave me alone and I can enjoy the rest. Am I the only one who's ever thought that? Because I feel this nagging sort of thing if I'm not generous. So I do that to pay off that, that little voice and then I get to do whatever I want. Now, is that faith, risk, and adventure? Or is that control, manipulation, and fear? Perhaps the reason many of us don't live 
lives of radical risk and faith is because we just have a view of the master that leads us in fear or apathy just to hide. To not see what we've given. I mean, think about all the ways we bury what we've been given. Can I just use me as an example? Here are all the ways I bury it. I don't bury stuff in the backyard anymore now that Y2K has passed. <laughs> Come on, DeVries, give me a smile, bro. That was funny. Scott? Yes! <laughs> Here's how I bury it. All this stuff I've been given exists for me. That's one way to bury. You just become narcissistic and you think, oh yeah, God's given me all this great stuff just for my comfort, well-being, and security. Nope, that would be burying. Or my other favor is to like someone else's set of gifts better than mine. I wish I had those kind of resources. Then I'd be faithful. That's burying it too. Or I'm just afraid of failure. I don't want to cast where the fish are because I might screw it up. And so I just don't really do anything. Don't know how it works for you. But do you see the tie that Jesus makes? He tells a story about servants who had one kind of view of a master. And with joy, they go out and risk. But then there's another servant who understood the master differently and out of fear hid what the master had given him. Which raises all sorts of questions for us, right? Why do we want so badly never to actually have to trust God for things? What happened to us? You know, you, I, I told my little boy stories of David and Goliath. When did that become a fairy tale? When did that become just a cute Bible story, but not a reality? At what point did we all agree that God did that stuff back then, but he doesn't do it anymore? The author of Hebrews has this really interesting take on gathering together. And whoever that is just says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. Which implies we need spurring. Right? So my questions for us are simply these. What are you burying? And what kind of view of God do you have? Now, I know that's like a cheesy church question to ask, but think about it. If you're the kind of person who never risks, who never pays attention to that little voice that says, hey, go talk to that person. Or hey, you could help that person. I mean, have you ever had those nudges, those whispers, those promptings that seem like they're God, like, okay, stop doing that, or, or go, go do that, and it's a little uncomfortable, and you try to suffocate those things? Every now and again, that happens to be Jesus of Nazareth, the risen and ascended Lord of the universe, inviting you to take a little step of faith. And when you take those little steps of faith, you see him reward those steps of faith now let me hasten to add he rewards in ways i never expect somebody was here last night and, and said god never disappoints us and i said that's true but he always surprises me with the way he doesn't disappoint me 
Because I always think he disappoints me first. You ever get that sense? Well, God, I did this. Shouldn't you have done this? And then you take the long view, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that was better than I could have dreamt out. For many of us, we just don't spend enough time with Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, just quite honestly, and I know this is totally cheesy. At least it could sound that way. If we believe Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if we believe that in, the, in Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, and if we believe that the fullness of divinity dwells in this Jesus of Nazareth, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the definitive revelation of who God is. And as it happens, this Jesus is far more magnificent than anything we could have imagined. And if that's what Jesus is like, then that is what God is like. And if God is like that, and we just got a glimpse of how he really is, then maybe we wouldn't be so timid. Then maybe what our neighbors think wouldn't be so important. Then maybe taking a couple of hits because we're a bit too fanatical for Jesus would be worth it. Or maybe listening to that nagging prompt, inviting you into something bigger wouldn't be so scary. So would you do this, men and women? Would you stand up with me? You can wake up now. You can unglaze your eyes. Gino, you can stretch. <coughs> would you close your eyes? I can trust you now to close your eyes and not fall asleep. If you were seated, I couldn't make that promise. And would you just go before the Lord and, and, and ask, God, what is it? Would you show me what you've entrusted me with? What is it I'm burying? Would you ask him, God, would you show me what I really think of you? Not what I sing, not what I say I believe, but what I actually really believe about you. Would you show me that? And one test is whether or not you have a view of God that's accurate is whether or not it leads you to risk and it leads you to joy or does it just lead you to fear, to hiding? So would you just take a moment with the Spirit, just asking God to show you your heart. And maybe for some of you, you've had this divine nudge in your spirit to just take this risk, to take this step. And maybe this morning, worship is just praying for courage to do that. To make room in your life for God to actually surprise you. So Jesus, may the reality of you shatter the small, trivial, fear-based pictures we have of you so that we would actually increase 
in faith and trust. To risk, to love with joy, a life of abandonment. Would you give us grace, Jesus? Walk with us. We are frail and small, and we need to be reminded of how big and epic and beautiful you are. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.